banded together by a mutual yearning for the more simplistic times and random fun of the comic books of yesteryear. Alec Berry and Scott Gardner now travel back. Back to the bins! Hello and welcome back to Back to the Bins. This is episode 6 and I am Scott Gardner. And my name is Alec Berry, as always. <laughs> it's not going to change, people. It's not going to change. Oh, it might, depending on what you get into. Yeah. But, I could uh, become a lord or a sir or something. <laughs> or just get in trouble with the law. Or deputy. I'm not planning on it, though. <laughs> oh, you never know what the future may bring. <laughs> so uh, we'll, let you, uh, we'll let you run with it this time. And uh, what do you got for us this week? Well, I'm going to go with Green Lantern. And uh, you dissed, nah, I won't say you dissed, but you said how Jordan really wasn't your boy last week. And, well, this Green Lantern issue is all Hal Jordan. Because uh, this is from the Len Wein, Dave Gibbons run, which kind of has some cred. And uh, I, I've got a, quite a few issues from this. And uh, this one I kind of just picked up recently. I found it at my LCS. And uh, I've, from what I've read, this is... The Dave Gibbons run has been great. The artworks, you know, it, it's awesome. Uh, they're usually just kind of one-and-done great stories. That There's kind of like this overlapping story going through. But uh, this is issue number 174, cover dated March 1984. Uh, as I said, written by Len Wein, drawn by Dave Gibbons, and colored by Anthony Tolan. This issue starts out where Hal Jordan is has been encapsulated in yellow energy and is falling from the sky. And there's a villain flying in the background going by the name Javelin, who is a German. He's got a crazy accent you have to try to read through. And it's not kind of fun for that dialogue. But uh, he's falling through the sky because he's been encased in this yellow kind of uh, paste in a way by the Javelin. Uh, it kind of gives you a backstory from last issue where Hal was busting up sort of a robbery of a, a truck transporting a solar jet engine uh, that was made by Ferris Air, which is, you know, if you know your Green Lantern mythos, that's where Hal works, Carol, Ferris, and all that. And uh, Javelin was behind this heist, and, you know, the two fight, and this is where we are now. So he's falling from the sky, and, you know, yellow Green Lanterns don't go together well. He's focusing his energy, and he is able to bust out from the yellow and uh, fly down to safety and such. You go back, he flies back to Ferris Air, where he meets his buddy, Tom, uh, also goes by the nickname Pie Face. Uh, they kind of have their little conversation. It seems that Ferris Air isn't under the best light lately. There's a lot of trouble, trouble going on for the company, and uh, Tom's really kind of giving this news to Hal because Hal's been quite busy lately. Uh, we come to like a board meeting type of situation where Carol is, uh, she's really been running the company for her father, but now her father's really kind of, uh, he's stressed out by the situation that the company's under and he's kind of screaming at her. And, uh, you know, she kind of fights back, but then, uh, Mr. Ferris realizes that one of his, uh, capitalistic enemies is out to get him and he goes by the name Jason Block. And, uh, he re- he thinks that he's the one probably behind the robbery. And, uh, you know, he's just out to shut down Ferris Air. And then the very next page, we find Jason Block on the phone with none other than Javelin, the one behind the heist. And, uh, you know, as thought by Mr. Ferris, Javelin was hired by Block, 
and he stole the solar jet engine, and now he has it in a giant yellow missile, and he's going to launch it at Ferris Air to destroy it once and for all for Mr. Block. Then the next page we find just kind of a ran- it's kind of just a random insertion in the story where we have these dudes in sort of like chemical suits dumping hazardous waste into the ocean, and uh, you see it kind of crash to the ocean floor, and these chemical tanks bust open, uh, spilling their toxic waste into the ocean. That's not good. Um, next scene we have, we go back to Ferris Air, and uh, employees kind of walking out. Things are kind of just at their last momentum. Uh, employees are very disgruntled, arguing how kind of runs in on this, and he feels like he should be doing something with his power to really fix Ferris Air. Uh, you know, he's got a history with it. He really doesn't want to see go down. So, you know, he charges up the ring, takes the oath, and flies off his Green Lantern, and uh, he's able to track down Javelin, uh, and get this solar engine back. And I guess I should have mentioned, the solar engine is pretty dang important to Ferris Air. It's uh, kind of like their next, it's their big money maker. It's their big project. So he's got it, that means that's why he's going after it, to get it back. Tracks down Javelin, they battle ensues. You know, they're fighting it out like any old superheroes would. And uh, Javelin is getting prepared to launch this big, you know, yellow missile, as I've uh, previously mentioned. And, uh, you know, fighting... And he does manage to get it off. They go up into the sky, and Hal must stop this giant yellow missile. He manages to kind of uh, distract Javelin, but, you know, how is Green Lantern going to stop a giant yellow missile? Well, he can't stop it with his Green Lantern ring per se, but he ends up kind of sitting on the nose of the missile and ends up steering it into the ocean. And uh, he gets he managed to get to the... Uh, solar engine out into safety, but the missile explodes right in the ocean, so Ferris Air is safe and sound. And then the last page is, I'm guessing this might be the first appearance of this villain, and I think he is quite a prominent villain for the Green Lantern mythos, but uh, I mentioned that toxic waste a little earlier, and I guess it's had some sort of effect because, because out comes, uh, out walks the shark, from the ocean, and uh, that's kind of the cliffhanger for the next issue. And the shark is basically just this big uh, anthropomorphic fish creature, and uh, that's the issue. Uh, you know, I really liked Dave Gibbons' pencils in this. It's you know, it's it's this kind of it's got his style that he had right in Watchmen. Uh, he's just a master of his craft. Uh, you can see it from this. You know, he's a great storyteller with his pencils. I love his style. It's just it's perfect for a comic book. Uh, story-wise, I thought it was great. You know, this is, these are usually kind of the superhero comics I like. The sort of just, uh, self-contained stories, in a way, but they, they have, uh, extra plots, extra subplots that sort of carry over and build up. Uh, you know, that, this is exactly what this is, and it's most, most of, most of the run is what this is, and I, I just enjoyed this a lot. Cool. I've got this particular one in my collection, but it's part of my vast unread pile that I still haven't ever gotten to yet, so I, I'm not familiar with this particular issue. But when you first mentioned the number, I, my, I got to scrambling here. I was looking, thinking, hey, is this one of those uh, pre-crisis monitor appearances? Uh, yeah. It's not. It's right in that same era, though, because number... There is an, there is an issue that I own that where the monitor does show up. It wasn't this one, though. It's it's right yeah, around this, though. I think it's right, yeah, it's right in that same era. It might even be the issue before. Let me see. I've got notes here somewhere. 
Yeah, 173. The issue before this was a pre-crisis monitor appearance, and then a couple issues later in 178, he yeah. shows up again. I have 178. There may be some other ones right in that same era, but yeah, this was the time when, uh, you know, when when they were getting some uh, some foreshadowing of the of the upcoming crisis and all that. Yeah, I love the cover on this uh, on this particular yeah. one. I'm, I'm looking yeah. at that right now. So these issues had great covers. Yeah, I, you know, like I said, I didn't. I hope I didn't come off sounding in the last one like I was a, a Hal Jordan hater. No, I didn't hate. No, that. you didn't. He was, I was just, just messing with you. you. Know, <laughs> he just. You know, it was it was very similar to. I always thought it was very apt that he and and uh, Barry Allen were best friends, because I I see both characters very similarly. They were both to me just great concepts that just never seemed like they fulfilled their full potential because they were they were very bland somehow. They just neither one of them seemed like they had much of a, a of a real personality, which I think was a, a big complaint against DC particularly back then but also it's still out there a little bit where D, the DC characters to some people just don't seem as as real and and as alive as the Marvel ones because the Marvel ones are usually injected with a lot of you know real world problem and angst and all that sort of thing whereas the the DC guys tend to be more of you know the big sort of aloof icons and I, I think that Hal Jordan very much was that kind of a character. He was this big iconic hero and for me anyway as a kid I, I just couldn't relate to the guy very well. He just didn't seem like a real person. He seemed more like an you know uh I, I don't I know how to describe it. Just a a, a big hero. Yeah. You know, a big uh I don't know. I, I I can't quite put it into words, but you, you know where I'm going. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you mean because when I first got into comics, I, I was like a strict Marvel guy, and uh, you know I'm still a Marvel guy at heart. But the one thing I never really liked about DC was the characters seemed too perfect. I mean, you look at Superman; he's yeah. the he's the ultimate being in a way. That's why I always like Marvel is because it it brought superheroes down to earth. Uh, it made right. them more human. It made them, you know, have problems and such. I mean, that was the Stanley motto for Marvel: make them have problems. Uh, you know, people like right. that. But now, as I'm kind of reading uh, superhero comics, I kind of, I mean, it is it's it's fiction, right? And I, I kind of like the idea of, I don't know, superheroes being more of a. Uh, like mythological figures in a way, and where they aren't just—they're not human. You know what I mean? Superman isn't human. Uh, technically, Hal Jordan is human, but he's been touched by something uh, more. You know, something f- beyond humanity. And I kind of like that idea where su- you know superheroes, superhero comics almost become uh, modern-day like mythology in a way. And I think that plays out better in DC books and then Marvel books. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll buy that 100%. Yeah. What do you get? Except for maybe Cap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Cap's got his roots in history. I mean, you can't take right. uh, World War Two and make that, you know, mythological in any way. It's, it's its place in U.S. history, and, you know, they just inserted a fictional character into it. So Cap's that for that reason, you know, and I, I love Captain America right now. I think it's just a bang-up book. It's one of my probably, like, three favorite books each and every month. Now, I'll ask you my standard question here. Um, did, did this grab you enough to, to want to delve further into the Green Lantern of, of this era? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do, I, like I said, I, I do have a couple other issues of this Len Wein, Dave Givens run. I definitely would like to complete it and, you know, uh, kind of just read the overlapping story of what the, the two creators did with the character. So, yeah, definitely. Cool. All right, my particular book, and this is quite a special one for me. This is Weird Western Tales, number 35. This is the July-August issue from 1976. And you can tell that because it's got the ultra-keen DC Comics Salutes the Bicentennial banner that ran across all the comics from right around this same time uh, back in DC. Um, I remember the Bicentennial. I was just a wee pup, but I do remember it, and it was kind of cool. Anyway... That's neither here nor there. Yeah, I have nothing what to makes, add to that. <laughs> what makes this a special issue is because I have had one hell of a time tracking down this particular issue. Don't ask me why. There's not anything you know that, that makes this a, a valuable or standout issue or anything, but just for some strange reason, this has been the hardest issue for me to track down. With this issue now in my possession, I have every single Jonah Hex appearance anywhere ever. And I'm very proud of that fact. I'm a very big Jonah Hex fan, but for some reason, I just could not seem to put my hand to this one. So I finally got it, got it on the cheap. It's really, really whipped. But somehow, that makes these old Weird Western Tales books and these old Jonah Hex books, Westerns in particular, I think, just somehow it makes them cooler when they're really well-loved, when you can look at it and see that, man, whoever owned this before me loved this book because they really wore it out, you know? So anyway, this was a really fantastic issue. Um, I'm not crazy about the cover. It's Ernie, and I've never been able to pronounce this guy's name right. It's either Chow or Chan, I'm not sure. And I think he changed his name from time to time. I believe it's Chan, Ernie Chan. Yeah, I'm never a big fan of his art. Not It's not bad or anything. I'm not knocking the guy. I'm just not particularly a fan. And it's a weird cover because what it advertises on the cover isn't exactly what happens inside, which, you know, granted, I realize that was, you know, very common back in this day, but it, it's weird because, like, all the elements are there, but it's just not how the story unfolds inside, which is kind of bizarre. Anyway, the credits on this one, this is a story called The Hangman by uh, Michael Fleischer, who was uh, pretty much steadily the artist, or excuse me, the writer on uh, Hex back in this day. And I think he had a hand in, well, I don't want to be wrong about this. Maybe we should edit this part out. I'll have to research it later. But I think he had a hand in the actual creation of Jonah Hex, but uh, definitely, you know, the chronicler of the early adventures of Jonah Hex back during this time. The art is by a George... Mollet, Moliterni, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I did a quick search for this guy, and it seems like everybody else is asking themselves the same question about this guy is, who the heck was he? I mean, he did a handful of comics, um, all Jonah Hexes, and just kind of disappeared. And there's a lot of speculation of, was this an alias of some kind for another artist? It looks His art style looks a lot like Gray Morrow to me. And other people that I, I saw talking about this said the same thing. So I don't know if this was a, a, some sort of pseudonym or what. But uh, the art, spectacular. Really, really beautiful. There's no ink or credited, so I don't know if he did the pencils and the inks or not. The ink style looks a lot to me like uh, Tony DiZaniga, but 
you know, granted, Tony DiZaniga did a lot of Jonah Hex back during this time, but he was always credited, to my knowledge, so I don't know. It's just... But anyway, the art is beautiful. The story concerns, at the very beginning of the story, Jonah Hex is crawling through the desert. He'd been... Uh, Something had happened, he'd been ambushed or left to die or something like that, and he's out crawling through the desert, and he comes across a water hole and starts to drink from it. And out of nowhere, these bullets pierce his hat, and all the water pours out, and it's this old man has just saved Jonah's life by saying, you know, hey, what's the matter with you? Didn't you see the sign? That water hole's poison. So he gives Jonah water, nurses Jonah back to health and everything, and Jonah, the guy's got an extra horse that he gives to Jonah, so they basically become, you know, fast friends, and they ride into this uh, this small town together of Hall Valley, Arizona. And uh, as they ride in, all the townsfolks are gathered, and it's a very, uh, like, uh, carnival-esque atmosphere, and there's about to be a hanging. And the old man takes, a, you know, the old man that uh, saved Jonah's life takes objection to the fact that they're going to hang this woman. And he asks, you know, well, what did she do? You know, why are you gonna, why are you gonna hang her? And they say basically that she was caught stealing ten dollars from somebody. So the old man offers to give ten dollars for the woman's life. All this does is basically tick off the uh, the lawman. And uh, Jonah, you know, is, is trying to talk his new friend out of, you know, let's let's not make a scene, let's not get involved. And they basically ride off as this woman is uh, is put to death. And uh, it's just a, a really, uh, it's an interesting scene, and it's, it just, I like the way it plays, because Jonah has been kind of, as great as the new series is, and I'm really, really digging it, so it's one of my top of the pile reads every month, they have kind of softened the edge, I think, on Jonah Hex, you know, over the years. It's, it's not just the fault of that particular series, but the Jonah Hex of today doesn't feel quite as, uh, cold-hearted and cold-blooded as he was a lot of times in these early issues of uh, of uh, Weird Western Tales. Anyway, Jonah and his, and his friend ride into town, you know, the town proper. Jonah wants himself a, a meal and a bath, basically, and to get to bed. While he's hanging out in the local eatery, the cafe or saloon, whatever this is, he overhears a conversation between the proprietor and the lawman, whereas basically... Uh, Jonah gets the idea that this guy is holding regular hangings and they're very good for the local business, that they're basically bringing in a lot of uh, traffic to the town <laughs> and filling the town coffers because all these people turn out to see these hangings. They're like, they're, they're like a big, take, uh, almost like a big media take, take event. Take the kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, bring the kids. Fun for Come all. On. So... Uh, you know, Jonah tries to get a room for the night. They're all full up, so he, he decides to go basically sleep in the local stable. The old man, in the meantime, disguises himself as a woman to try to get a room in the in the local uh, inn. They take him in, and the bellhop starts to hit on him. But when he realizes that he's actually a man, they throw him out into the street. <laughs> It's it's all pretty. It's a pretty fun uh, little scenario. But then uh, when he's laying out in the street, the lawman comes across him, and uh, so the lawman finds the old man laying in the street after he's been booted out of the uh, the hotel, and uh, takes him in. Basically, runs him in for being drunk and disorderly, and locks him up. The next day, the um, 
What's the name of these guys? They're the Yellow Something Gang, Yellow Mask Gang, I think they are. They come into town and they rob the uh, the bank. Basically, they make off with all the the profits from you know the 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 town getting fat off of all these hangings that have been going on, and they make off. Well, Jonah, you know, who's sleeping in the in the stable sees these guys riding out of town, and he ambushes one of them. The last guy in the line knocks him cold, and the sheriff takes him, locks him up. As soon as Hex and everybody are gone, the sheriff and the captured uh, gang member start talking, and you quickly realize the sheriff's in on this whole thing. So basically one big scam he's running where he's hanging all these people to fill the, the town coffers, and then he's got this gang riding into town to steal all the money. So he's in on the whole thing. And the uh, you know now that this guy's been captured, the the sheriff's pretty upset. He's like, you know, well now what am I going to do with you? This screws up the whole plan. And uh, he he's really not sure what he's going to do. In the meantime, the guy's like, well look, you got to let me go, you know. And so they get into it about you know what what are they going to do about the situation? The sheriff. Uh, you know, basically says, all right, well, I'm going to let you go. The guy starts out the door, the sheriff shoots him dead in the back. And he's going to make up a whole story about, you know, how the guy was trying to get away and he had to he had to stop him. Well, he has forgotten totally about the old man that he ran in, who's still in the jail. The old man witnesses the whole thing. But like an idiot, the old man says, well, I'm going to tell everybody, you know, you're not going to get away with this kind of thing, which is a pretty stupid thing to do. Yeah. So the uh, the sheriff knocks him out. And then basically, while he's unconscious, pours all this liquor into him. So he gets him, you know, good and shellacked while he's unconscious. We cut to a scene where basically Jonah has tracked down the rest of this gang. He uh, kills all but one of them, and he's bringing them back into town when he arrives back to basically the same spot where they originally came into the town. Once again, you know, the whole township and everybody from all around, you know, all parts around have gathered again. It's another, you know, very carnival-like atmosphere, and they're going to have themselves a hanging. This time, it's the old man. And Jonah's like, you know, well, what's going on? Why are you going to hang my friend? And, you know, the sheriff's like, oh, he's a member of the Yellow Mask Gang. He's like, are you nuts? You know, this he's an old man. So, you know. The, the sheriff's basically like, ah, stay out of this, you know, you're an outsider kind of thing. Smacks the horse on the ass, and, you know, the horse starts to ride away, and the old man starts to hang. But Jonah, you know, he's had enough. He shoots the rope, breaks the rope, and the old man tumbles to the ground. And uh, the sheriff comes in, starts to basically threaten, you know, hey, you'll look, you know, you're interfering with the law. You know, I can run you in. I can, you know, you can hang for this. And my favorite part of the whole book is basically... You know, Jonah Hex, people don't mess with Jonah too much. You know, he's he's a stone-cold killer. He's a real badass. He's basically like a Boba Fett of the Old West. But sometimes, just by the way he looks and the way he carries himself, he can pull off this whole, you know, don't push me look. You know, this whole don't push me, don't mess with me attitude. He pulls it off here. You know, there's the whole town is turned out. They could very easily throw a rope around his neck and hang him, but just by his demeanor and his look, they, they leave him alone. So you know he he picks the old man up off the ground. He's helping his friend, and and uh, you know he's like, "What is this all about?" And the old man tells him, well, "You know the sheriff's in on the whole thing. You know I heard it all. You know and 
he basically lays out the whole story of what's going on. So I guess somewhat predictably, but still really great, they hang the sheriff at the end of the story. And that's basically where it ends, where, you know, Jonah has unwittingly kind of righted, you know, righted this wrong where uh, the, the, the sheriff was pretty much just hanging anybody and everybody he could, you know, on very loose justice just to uh, pull this scam off. And at the very end of the story, you know, he's the one that gets scammed because, you know, Jonah causes him to get hung and basically the, the party goes on, you know, with, uh, you know, we got a huckster at the end, you know, calling out, you know, taffy apples, popcorn, thick hot fudge and, you know, selling cold beer and the whole thing. So it's, it, it was, you know, that's what I loved about these old, really early Jonah Hex appearances was they all had these twists, you know, Twilight Zone style endings to them where, you know, some, you know, real scumbag, you know, usually got their comeuppance in a really good, you know, kind of sometimes cold hearted or even bloodthirsty fashion. And I, I really enjoyed them. And, and this one didn't disappoint. It was a, it was a lot of fun. And uh, that's pretty much this issue. That sounds cool because I don't know if you've ever read any of him, but uh, oh, Henry, uh, you know, he, he's oh, yeah. famous for those sort of endings. And that's exactly what that reminded me of. Uh, oh, Henry S type of ending. So I, I always yeah. love stories with that kind of twist. I like the, uh, you know, I love Jonah Hex. You know, he's he's definitely one of my absolute favorite comic book characters. I love the new book that's coming out. I recommend everybody give it a try because it is one fantastic read. But the, if there's one thing that I wish that they would do again with Jonah Hex is return him to a little bit more of these colder roots, you know, to where, because I, I, I wish I could remember what issue it is. It's fantastic. There is actually an issue, I, I kid you not where he kicks a crippled woman in a wheelchair off a cliff, and that's how the issue ends. So, I mean, he was not at all heroic a lot of times in these older issues. A lot of times he was a real cold-hearted SOB, and I loved him for it. You know, that's what made the stories great, was he did some really nasty stuff to people, you know, in in his own breed of, of you know, range justice i guess you could call it and it, it was just it made for fantastic stories <laughs> that sounds great <laughs> <laughs> nothing like kick, kicking the uh the the handicapped off a of cliff oh, they, they can't pull that off today <laughs> it's so great <laughs> nope no matter how evil they are i don't think stories with like that would fly anymore no. gotta <laughs> gotta it's all the political correctness Takes the fun out of everything. Well, I think that about uh, wraps us up for this yeah, time. Yeah, I think I think this was a good one. Episode six is in the can. And that concludes yet another episode of Back to the Bins. If you have any sort of feedback, compliments, or criticism, please email the show at backtothebins at gmail.com. Back to the Bins is an Alec Berry, Scott Gardner production, copyright 2009. Please join us again next time, and let us take you back, back to the Bins. She